Our text tonight is found in that passage that we read in Habakkuk and uh, verses 17 and 18. And to look at what it means to rejoice even in trouble. And uh, we've been looking today already at the, the harvest. And uh, really it's so important that we remember and that we are a thankful people for the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. And we've been able to recount today the, the gracious provision of our God. We should never take that for granted. And as we give thanks for the Lord's goodness in material provision, we also praise him, of course, for that spiritual provision, the greatest of all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a mercy it is that so great and so glorious a God has done such things for us in sending his own son to be our saviour. Friends, we must never cease to be amazed at such love and such grace. And these verses, verses 17 to 18 in the prophecy of Habakkuk, speak to circumstances when things are difficult. And uh, maybe as we read the passage, there was probably much that maybe didn't instantly uh, mean too much. But the reality is when we look at it properly, it speaks to the circumstances. And maybe you notice that most of it was recounting the great acts of God in the past looking back to what God has done, the way that he has appeared on behalf of his people. And uh, Habakkuk, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses very poetical and beautiful language to explain this and to remind the people of it, to express the glory and the, the majesty of God in his amazing works. And so the writer, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he covers much of Israel's history and in Habakkuk 3, in his prayer and the outpouring of his heart, he speaks of the way that God overcame the Egyptians at the Red Sea, how he preserved his people in the wilderness and led them into the promised land, the overthrow of the nations of Canaan, and then the establishing of his people, great works of God through the ages. And Habakkuk looks back to the past because at that point in time, he was living in really difficult days. The cause of God was very low and there seemed to be very little outward encouragement to give him any joy. And yet for all the discouragement, we find that he is still resolved to hope in God. You know, if you look at verse 17, it describes and he describes really a very dark and terrible picture. You know, we give thanks, of course, that the, the harvest has come, but he gives this scenario, well, what if the harvest didn't come? This worst case scenario. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Now he's not saying that these things have happened. He's not prophesying that they will happen. He's just giving the worst situation that he can think of to make the point that even then, even then, all would not be lost. The people of God would still have abundant reason to be thankful. And that's why he says, verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You know, friends, when you look at what's happening today, you know, some of the things that are taking place, you know, we, we might put it like this. You know, you think of the the energy crisis spiraling. You think of the cost of living, which continues to go up. Mortgages becoming too expensive. 
You know, imagine the NHS collapsing, pensions disappearing, war on mainland Europe coming closer. Even then, as believers, we will have cause to rejoice in the Lord and to joy in the God of our salvation. That is what Habakkuk is saying. We need to dwell upon the reality of God. In other things, when when things get difficult, when the outlook seems bad, we must always take account of the Lord. We must always remember him, no matter how bleak the prospect seems to us, even though it might seem to be getting worse and worse, we must never leave God out of our thinking or perspective. Because our God is capable of doing exceedingly abundantly. Nothing is too hard for him. And so we must resolve to rejoice in the God of our salvation. And you know, this is such a good theme for us to remember at this this harvest time that the Christian is able to rejoice in the Lord in the good and the bad times. The believer is able to rejoice in God when everything else seems to fail. And you say, well, how? How do we do that? Well, when we look at the unbeliever, the one who doesn't know God, they are feeding upon the creature, as it were. But the believer is feeding upon the Savior. We must be those who feed on the Lord, who rest on the Lord, and not rely on anything else. You know, I was challenged in this past week when I heard a fellow preacher ask this question. Do I love preaching Christ more than I love Christ himself? I was really challenged by that. You know, as well explains, the preacher must not feed upon his preaching. You and I must not feed upon the means of grace. We must feed upon God himself. So the means are there to bring us to God himself. And we need to be those who look to him. We must make him our supreme delight. Our ambition is not simply to hear his words by some men's voice or to handle the the elements when we come around the Lord's table or other privileges. Our ambition is to know that communion with God, to know him personally, intimately for ourselves. And when the soul feeds upon God through Jesus Christ, we have so many reasons to rejoice and to be comforted even when there seems to be little outwardly to encourage us. We say, well, what are some of those reasons? Well, let me bring some to you. We rejoice due to God's wonderful thoughts towards us as his people. I don't know if you've ever stopped to really think about that. The first reason is because of God's stunning thoughts towards us as his people, if we are those who are trusting Christ tonight. You know, it's an amazing thing to know someone who has good thoughts towards you. Do you know that it's certainly true in close relationships such as, you know, friendships that we might have and certainly in marriage. You know, a happy marriage is where each partner knows that the other has good thoughts towards them. So that however difficult life may become at times, they know that they have somebody standing with them and by them whose whose thoughts are supportive and encouraging towards them. If that's true in a relationship like that, how much more in our relationship with the Lord? The Bible tells us that God's thoughts towards his people are so kind. So remarkable thing. Isaiah 55 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says to the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
You know, Isaiah tells us there that sometimes we miscalculate God's attitude towards us. Around 280 years ago, there was a man called John Wesley, and he arrived in a place called Newcastle-upon-Tyne to preach the gospel. And uh, he was there just before a great move of God happened. And when he was there, before God moved in that way, he said that he heard you know, children using blasphemy, terrible language. He, he looked out the people. They were full of drunkenness and debauchery and depravity. And he said that this place was so wicked that it was ripe for mercy. And mercy came. God did a mighty work and many hundreds, thousands in Newcastle and Durham and Yorkshire were touched by the grace and power of God. You know, how often do we say about our day, the people around us, this nation, oh, it's ripe for judgment. But God's thoughts are not ours. How do we know what his thoughts are? He may bring mercy and would to God that he would. Think of Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know, what did we just stand and sing together? We've been loved with everlasting love. And from all eternity, God has had those kind thoughts toward his own. Paul writes in Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Loved by him, saved by him, blessed immeasurably by him. And so it's remembering that God's thoughts towards his people are love and kindness. That gives us comfort and it gives us rest even when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances in our lives. God's favor towards us in Christ never wavers. And it's not just the thoughts of God towards his people which are wonderful, but also his actions and his works. Romans 8 verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You know, if God has shown his love towards us, given us his son by, by death, the agonies of crucifixion, not sparing him the, the full weight of divine anger, Will not that same God freely also give you all things? Goes on in that passage, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then it is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You know, when we, we talk of God's thoughts towards us as his people, you know, it's not some vague idea. God has shown his thoughts towards us in the most incredible way. The death of our Savior demonstrates his thoughts and his purposes of love towards us. And then, friend, you can add towards his thoughts, his words, his actions, his promises. Exceeding great and precious promises, all yes and amen in Christ. You know, someone shared Psalm 37 verse 4 with me in a card in this past week. It's a wonderful verse. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Great promises that we have been given in Christ. And so, friends, even though there is so much to concern us in this messy, broken world, even though we, we see little advance for the gospel in our situation, although we have lovely glimpses of his blessing, little to make us think that a great new age is about to dawn, even still, 
We feed on the Lord. We rest in his amazing thoughts of kindness towards us. Thoughts which came to full fruition in the death of the Savior. And the granting of those promises to us in Christ. We have so much to be thankful for. And so never forget. Never forget these things. And never forget that it was in chains that Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. He was in chains for the gospel. And yet even still, he was able to bless the Lord and to rejoice in him. And so it is for those who know the Lord. So it was with Habakkuk, though the fig tree may not blossom, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. So we rejoice because of God's wonderful thoughts towards us. We also rejoice because God is the compensation of the believer in this life. I was struck in the way that one preacher speaks of this, that God is our compensation. And so the more outward things we have, often the less of God we have. The more we have to live with, the less we have to live for. The less we have crowding our hearts, the more of God we have dwelling within us. Think of 2 Corinthians 12.10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Often the, the fewer outward blessings we possess, often the more of, of God's presence we have. You know, I've been reading a lot recently about the covenanters in Scotland. And uh, they had to, at one point, forsake their places of worship and they had to meet in the fields. You know, and those not long after who had to meet on the moors and the, the hillsides and sometimes on barges and boats, those who stood listening to the preaching of the word while snow came down and made them invisible to the preacher and vice versa. How much they knew of God. They had so little and yet they were immeasurably blessed. They didn't have much, but they had much of God. Think of the prophet Malachi. He lived in a very evil day and there were many hypocrites who professed religion and God chastises them. But then he says, for those who are truly his, Malachi 3, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. And he listened to this, it's wonderful. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. They shall be mine on the day that I make them my jewels. It's wonderful. You know, when the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem, to whom were the angels sent? Wasn't to Caiaphas, the high priest, the most religious person in the nation. Wasn't to the Pharisees. It wasn't to the Sadducees. You know who it was. It was the shepherds. The shepherds out in the field watching their flocks by night and suddenly they're confronted with this, this host of angels praising and giving glory to God and announcing the coming of the Savior. And they go to find him and they're amongst the lowest. They seem to have so little in earthly terms, but suddenly they're brought to know Christ, to know God himself. You know, often the spirit of Christ is given much to those in desperate state. Think of the early church in Acts. They had to forsake everything. They were forced out of the temple, forced out of society, forced out of the synagogue. They were slandered. They were ridiculed. They were written off as evil. Yet look what the Lord did. They came together to pray and the scriptures say that the whole place was shaken and they're given great boldness. 
Not long ago, we looked at Paul and Silas thrown into the worst dungeon for the gospel. Acts 16, terrible experience of darkness and loneliness and misery, and yet at midnight, singing praises to God. A divine deliverance, mighty earthquake, and we see the Philippian jailers converted and all his household. How much of God they knew. You know, I love to read the letters of Samuel Rutherford. He's a minister from many, many, many years ago. And Rutherford was preaching at Anworth to his dear flock, and he loved them. He loved his people that the Lord had given him charge over, and they loved him. And he was a remarkable man of faith, and yet he was exiled to Aberdeen, which was a terrible place in those days. And he was placed under house arrest for preaching the gospel. He was prevented from public ministry for a season. And yet he tells us that during his confinement, Jesus Christ shone into that place where he was and he said, made it like a palace of gold, like a chariot of love paid for the daughters of Jerusalem. And he says, Christ poured upon me rich expressions of love and kindness. And it was out of that experience that he wrote these wonderful letters. The letters of Samuel Rutherford came out of that bleak experience that he had. Because God met him there. You know, outward things may be taken from us, but inward things remain. We may lose much outwardly, but we still have Christ. We may have no reputation, but indeed with the Lord we have grace and we have favor. We have the love of Christ. And when we remember this, then we can say, though the fig tree may not blossom, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Do you know, that type of rejoicing is impossible if you don't know him. Do you know, if you're just in this world and you have no hope and you're trying to make the best of it, you'll never know the rejoicing and joy that the believer knows. It is something otherworldly, other, uh, just utterly staggering and all of grace. You know, if we're just taken up with life here, with what men think here, or you know, what enjoyment we can have here, or what material wealth we can have here, we will be devastated when we fail to get those things. But if we are eager for that communion with God, to love Christ and to know him and to be close to him, then all other things, they fall into their right perspective. I will rejoice in the Lord. You know, you think of the Puritans, I often mention the Puritans, those ministers mightily used of the Lord. Some of you will know that in 1662, many of them were put out of their pulpits. It was known as the Great Ejection. And there were political reasons why that happened, and we haven't got time to go into it all now, but it meant that many of these men couldn't even go near the churches where they'd served. They couldn't walk into their own pulpits or to teach their own congregations. Many were thrown into prison. And what did they do? They rose early in their chains. They read the scriptures. They prayed. They studied. They preached to any visitors. And in the confines of their cells, they wrote incredible commentaries and books of the Lord. And we are so blessed to have them today. And they're still changing the lives of thousands of people around the world. And you say, well, well what had they done before prison? Well, they rose early, they read the scriptures, they prayed, they studied, they preferred sermons to preach to the people, wrote incredible commentaries and books about the Lord. There's no difference. In prison, out of prison. In season, out of season. They loved the Lord. 
and they served the Lord regardless of outward circumstances. The outward circumstances did not deviate them from that. And friends, when we know the Lord like that, as one explains, it is to, to have it anchored deeply, to have an anchor deeply cast into the waters of grace, our hearts settle on the truths of Scripture. That gives us the real blessing and the real joy, even when troubles come. And so we rejoice because of these things. We rejoice. And we rejoice because we have so many reasons to hope in God. I couldn't possibly give you them all in this time that we have. But, you know, we can recount so many reasons. You know, when life is difficult, when challenges come, when things are at a low ebb, as believers, we still have many reasons to rejoice in the Lord and hope in Him. And though we may lose much, we still have the Lord, so in the ultimate sense, nothing is lost. You know, just think on this for a moment. You know, as believers, we would say that this day in which we've been placed is not the easiest. They're dark days. They're difficult days. But you know, if you're a believer, you'll still be brought home to glory just like those who are living in better days spiritually. You'll still be brought through. You know, imagine for a moment there was an outpouring of great blessing. You know, the people overflowing out of every room in this building just to be under the sound of the preaching of the word. You know, imagine that you had an incredible preacher to proclaim the truth. Imagine if that blessing then spread through the whole town. Wonderful things. But you know, when all is said and done, beyond the hearing of the sermons or vast congregation, our overriding desire must always be God himself. To be with him. A sinner saved by grace will be brought to glory in dark days or brighter days. The outcome is still the same. Think of Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Never doubt this. When God begins a work, he will always complete it. You know, you didn't start the work when you came to the Lord. You didn't start it. And I'll tell you something else. You're not going to finish it either. You know, if you feel at times that you can't keep going, you're right, you can't. But God did, and he can, and he will. It's all of him. And whilst it's always true that God blesses us with many gifts, our lives nonetheless can at times seem to be filled with disappointments. You know, we we continue to give in to sin, don't we? We, we, At times we struggle with doubts. Sometimes life's circumstances just seem to make it hard to keep going in the faith. But we can and we will continue on the journey because the word promises that our God began a good work and he will finish it. And as we stumble along the way and as we face those difficulties, remember God himself is helping you. God himself is with you. And God always finishes what he starts. And if you are trusting Christ, then he has started something eternal in you. And so when you feel overwhelmed at the journey ahead of you, when the route forward looks so steep, remember that your name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. He won't let you go. The work that he has begun in you, he will complete. And we can rejoice in that, surely, friends, even when things are hard. 
And we can rejoice in the Lord in every circumstance because even though we may lack much, lack one avenue of grace, God can bless others. God can feed our souls even though we may seem to have lost many things. He can bless the things that remain which we still have. You know, we may not be much of a church in the eyes of some, but we still have the word of God. We still have the truth of God and the promises of God. We may be despised by others, but if we retain the presence of Christ, what do we lose? Opposition, outward troubles only bring the Lord's people closer together with more love and unity. Adversity should drive us together as a family, preserving unity and knowing more of the sweetness of Christ. You know, there is no reason as to why when outward things are bleak, that our hearts should not be fired and quickened and moved to love one another in a deeper way, to love Christ more. Because even in difficult days, the Lord can do wonderful things far beyond our expectations. You know, some tend to think when you speak to them that God can only bring great blessing by raising up some you know, prominent man who sweeps in on the world stage and commands repentance to the whole world. Now, the Lord can do that. He's used mighty men in his hand. But sometimes he chooses to work in a very different way. I don't know if you've ever heard the name James McKilkin. And uh, he was around in 1859. And uh, there's an account of an awakening in Northern Ireland. And there was no big name preacher. In fact, there was just this one young man called James McKilkin. And he'd not long been saved, and he gathered together two or three other young men, and eventually all those other young men, those two or three, they were saved too. And so four of them, four young men, and they used to go to a small schoolroom together in a little village called Kells. And they would study the Scriptures together, and they would pray together. And the world probably looked on and thought, how insignificant. Four young men meeting together to be in the Scriptures and to pray. But that insignificant gathering in the eyes of the world was what the Lord saw fit to use. And it was the seed from which a great work of God began. And over 10,000 people would be brought to faith in Christ as the truth was proclaimed. You see, God says, my thoughts, my ways are not yours. And there are so many reasons to rejoice in him. And this is a, a day for thanksgiving. And in fact, every day for the believer should be marked by gratitude. You know, in various forms, we've said this quote. And I'll remind you of it again. The darker the night, the brighter the stars. The darkest hours is always just before dawn. And so it is. Who knows what the Lord may yet do, even when things look bleak outwardly. We can still rejoice in our God. You know, think of Abraham. God gave him those promises so long before they were fulfilled and stumbles along the way. And it seemed as though the, the promise was gone. The hope of that promise being fulfilled was gone. And yet, despite all of that, Romans 4, Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced 
that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. That's wonderful. Do we believe that what God has promised, he is also able to perform? God's purposes were not thwarted. The promise was fulfilled, as we know. So, friends, so much cause to rejoice in God. And as we finish, some final lessons. You know, the most effective witness of the local church is love amongst the members. Unity of heart amongst the people. Happiness amongst those who come together to worship the Lord so that men and women who may come in into the midst see that true Christianity, real Christianity, knowing Jesus Christ transforms lives, breeds love and joy and peace and all the virtues of the Spirit of God. Now, of course, we must reach out. We must speak to people about the Savior. There is always a place for that. Of course there is. But friends, we need to love Jesus Christ. And as we love him, as we love each other, so it will show the reality of God's work in our midst. And when unity and love and sincerity and affection and fellowship comes into the people of God, God honors that. It's of his hand. And friend, I rejoice at every glimpse that we have of the blessing and unity of being together as brothers and sisters. And I pray that it increase. Pray that we would be a rejoicing people. We are to rejoice always, even though, like with Habakkuk, there appears at times to be nothing of promise in the fields. Things may get worse, but even still, let us rejoice in the Lord. And to pursue this means that at times we've got to fight against the gloominess of our own selfish nature. And we've got to ask the Lord for help in this. It's it's not easy. Some of us are, are more prone to that than others, but we must resolve to rejoice. And to pursue this also means to be aware that we're always tempted to walk by sight and not by faith. We want to see how things are going to work out. But friend, following the Lord, we walk by faith. An authentic faith, faith which is God-given, abides even when we have nothing tangible to show for it. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we have to strive to resist the devil. You know what the devil will do? He'll try to sow discord in your own heart. He'll try to pull your attention away from where it should be. He will try and sow division and ruin amongst the Lord's people. He loves to spread gossip. He loves to unsettle. He loves to disturb. He loves to sow strife. The enemy loves to whisper. He loves to antagonize. And you know, you can guarantee that he'll be relentless in that. And we can invent it, imagine it, what it's going to be. And all of it has the purpose of his hand of trying to weaken and paralyze and ruin. And we've got to resist that. We've got to look beyond to the Savior, to look beyond all the, the murmurings and rejoice in the Lord. We need to be like Habakkuk. Therefore, whatever outward circumstances of our lives, whatever they may be at this time, we should be able to say with him, though the fig tree may not blossom, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It's to resolve to remember the goodness of God, the holiness of God, both in history, in our own experience, and to rejoice in his faithfulness and his abounding mercy towards us. You know, Habakkuk, this newly humble prophet will rejoice in the Lord. The question is, will we? 
Will we rejoice in him this night and in the days ahead? Not in our supplies and our strength, not in our physical health, not in our own security, not even in the defeat of the enemy. There is one constant. There is one utter security. There is one haven for true joy in this most challenging of journeys. And it is God himself. And we can only rejoice when we know him and when we're looking to him and resting in him. And even when other earthly joys seem removed, he holds himself out to us. The question is, will we lean upon him? Will we trust him? Will we come and rest on our glorious God whose throne will never pass away, whose kingdom forever stands, who will accomplish all his purposes? Friends, for the believer tonight, there is so much cause to rejoice. And I pray that we would be like Habakkuk, that we would rejoice in the Lord, in the God of our salvation, because in Christ we are immeasurably blessed. And so may indeed, as we leave this place this night, may it be that gratitude is the mark of our hearts. God is good and always good. And we praise him that in Christ we know him and will know him forever. Amen.